0: and welcome back to Beyond the Fence. And I guess it's time that we have a chat about the new NRL rules and just the state of the game in general because I think my views have been perfectly clear but I've seen a lot of flinging of shit from both sides and I just wanted to get my argument across. So I'm doing this one solo. There's no agendas, there's no uh, guests. It's just me chatting to you for, I don't know, hopefully this doesn't take too long. But yeah, so I think if you follow me on Twitter, you'll be pretty aware of my personal views of the the state of the game, not even necessarily the new rules, just the state of the NRL in general. And I'm not the biggest fan, shall we say, of how the game has gone. Um, But I'm hoping to at least... If nothing else uh, in this episode, just get my argument across as to what I think has gone wrong. Uh, So yeah, let's get into it. I guess the main thing that people point to um, on this side of the debate is the introduced rules to, for lack of a better explanation, speed up the game, even though the talking heads at NRL HQ will... Try and convince you using their own data that the game, you know, the ball's in play less, etc. etc. Uh, I think it's pretty clear to see the game is faster, there's less stoppages, etc. Obviously, eliminating scrums and replacing them with handovers is the main, I guess, proponent or the main factor for that aspect of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty obvious to see that the game is faster. Um, but I'm just going to get into a couple of arguments first. I guess the main thing that defenders of the state of the game right now will say is that, you know, it's only the fans of the lower clubs right now that are arcing up and complaining, which I don't think is true, Quite uh, just personally. I don't I think there's definitely trends of who is more likely to defend the rules versus who is more likely to be unhappy with them. That's undeniable, it's just human nature. Um but I do also think that watching games as a neutral is definitely far less enjoyable this year. So people will point to roster management and go, Oh, you know, why should and this is it directly from, you know, the likes of Peter Volandis, et etc. Uh, you know, why should we cater to mediocrity? And that's fair. That's not an unrealistic or an unreasonable argument to make. And yes, you know, teams have been bad since 1908. My argument is that, yes, teams have always been bad, but the gap has been widened to such a degree that it's almost unrealistic to expect, you know, a a lot of close games as the game is currently constructed. So you've got three teams now at the end of round four that have a plus-minus of uh, triple figures, negative, negative triple figures after four rounds. The worst at this stage last year were the Gold Coast Titans, who were minus 83 after four rounds. Then it was the Broncos at minus 76, and then I think uh, the third place, or the third worst for and against at the time was only minus 52, the Dragons. So I've got that data off uh, footy forecast that they let you go back and look at the ladder at various points throughout the season. Um, but yeah, I think the, the fact that we've got the Cowboys, the Eagles, and the Dogs already at minus 100 plus shows that... The, the way the game is played now has really widened the gap. And it's not a discredit to the good teams. I think, what I, I'm going to use a personal example here. I am a fan of the Penrith Panthers. Probably the team that has been blessed the most by the faster speed of the game. And just the way they've recruited, you know, with the likes of Corusau, you know, Jerome Lewis, Emergence, Nathan Cleary, Dylan Edwards. You know, their spine is built for a fast game. So I am not going to sit here and say, oh, the Panthers are just better than everyone else. It's just, you know, it's a our timeline aligning. No, it's not. It's, it's partly that, but it's also, the rules have definitely helped. They've been a catalyst for this, you know, historic run of form that they've been on. But I have seen Panthers fans defending the new rules by saying, you know, things like, You know, we've waited, we were, you know, shit for years, and this is our time for success. And that's fair, that's right. (laughs) Trust me, they were shit for many, many years. But they were never like I don't recall watching Panthers games back in you know, the early tens, you know, twenty twelve, twenty thirteen, whatever, twenty twelve. You know, when they were a bad team, when it was, you know, Travis Burns and Luke Walsh. And, you know, Lachlan Coote in the spine. I never went into games thinking, you know, we're most likely going to get pumped by 30-plus here. i go into games, you know, not expecting to win, but not expecting... I didn't go into games expecting them to be absolutely thrashed. Now, I think if you ask fans of Manly, fans of the Bulldogs, fans of the Cowboys, they're going into games expecting to get pumped. And yes, those teams would be bad anyway. I didn't predict any of them to make the eight this year. I think I predicted Manly for the spoon. But I don't think we thought that there would be some of the worst for and against margins this early in the season. So I've got some numbers just to run through. The 2016 Newcastle Knights. Widely considered one of the worst teams of the modern era. Won one game all season finished on a total for and against of minus 495. At this point in that season, so up to round four, they were only minus 82. Again, that data's a footy forecaster. The 1999 Magpies had the record for the worst for and against of all time at minus 659. And obviously, we know what happened to the Magpies. They ended up getting merged with the Balmain Tigers to form the West Tigers. But yes, the Magpies of 99, the worst ever differential of minus 659. If we take the pace that the Cowboys, Bulldogs, and Manly are on right now, the North Queensland Cowboys are currently minus 105. They're on pace to finish minus 630. The Bulldogs are on pace... Sorry, the Bulldogs are minus 106 currently projected to finish minus 636, 636. Manly are currently minus 122. If they continue at this pace for the rest of the season, they will not only be the worst for and against of all time, but they will comfortably blow out the Magpies record. They'll be minus 732 if that continues. Now, obviously, there's some caveats to these stats. Sample size is the biggest one. You can't expect teams to keep losing by 30, 40 points every week for the rest of the season. They're obviously going to uh, fang a win at some point. You know, Manly have played... Like, I think all three of those teams have played a pretty rough schedule to start the season. But you look at the Bulldogs, they got pumped by a pretty ordinary themselves Broncos team. Sure, those teams will play against each other, but the fact that at this point of the season we are legitimately talking about not one, but three teams being amongst the worst of all time, that's, I think that's worrying. Because what these rules have done is they've widened the gap between good and bad, so that teams that are bad right now that would be bad anyway. The chances of them being able to compete in an even game are just so much lower. Because these rules are now designed for game managers and teams that can control games So the good teams, what they can do, they can just get, you know, 10, 12 points in front and then control the game. But I'll get to that in a second. So I just have a couple other numbers. So I got these stats from Andrew Ferguson, who does some great work over at the Rugby League Project. You should go check that out if you haven't already. From 1908 until last year, there had only been seven sides in NRL slash New South Wales Rugby League history that had a triple-figure negative points difference after four rounds of a season. That was University in 1920, 21 and 35, 1971 Canterbury, 1974 Balmain, 99 Manly, and the 2002 North Queensland Cowboys. We have three sides this year at that mark. I don't think Manly, Canterbury, and North Queensland are that much worse than, you know, Penrith, Melbourne, South Sydney are good, if that makes sense. So I don't think that that margin would be reflective if the rules were the same as, you know, 2019. And what I mean by that, You look at how the game is played now. Yes, it's faster. I don't think anyone can deny that. We even saw tonight, when I'm recording this on Tuesday night, Ben Hunt, current uh, St. George captain, came out in the news and said he feels the game has gone too fast and it's created an unsafe environment. Sure, you can choose to interpret that however you want. He is currently injured. I don't think it's just sour grapes on his part. I choose to interpret that as a current player who's played the speed... Of the game that we currently have, the clock gets paused more, the stoppages are reduced, we have more ball in play. So, the fatigue that would usually be happening around the 65th, you know, 70th minute is getting brought forward 15, 20 minutes, and it's affecting the way people play. Um, I don't see how we can discredit a current player's opinion on that. I just think, if a well-respected figure in the game like Ben Hunt is an Origin halfback, he's a premiership-winning player. How he can come out and say these things, and then we just discredit it as, you know, for whatever reason that we we discredit it. I don't even know why we would be discrediting it because he is a current captain of a club, a surprisingly good team as well right now. The Dragons, at least record-wise. And I just don't, you know, I don't see how we can discredit something like him, like what he's saying. But yeah, as I said, the game is fast, but I want to go back to my original point of teams being able to control the game much easier. So, if you can get 10, 12 points ahead, right? Right? you can pretty much use these new rules to your advantage by hook or by crook, you know, legally or otherwise, you can effectively suffocate teams out of the game. So what I mean by that is, for example, you know, let's say, um, and I know, just off the top of my head, I'm just thinking of an example. Let's say Penrith were playing against, uh, Manly, which they did on Thursday night. Penrith in the first half, you know, shot out. This probably isn't the best example because, again, it's first versus last. But just to make my point here, Penrith got out 20, uh, 22-0, I think it was, or 20 0 and Manly hit back. What's stopping good teams now from as soon as they get that 10-12 point lead, Uh by controlling the game, they'll kick to corners and they'll kick it out because there's no scrums anymore. So it's a set restart. So you've gone from a restart where you'd have half the players in the scrum and it would just be all the attacking, you know, the quick men, increased chance of a line break you know, or some sort of second phase or something. You replace that with a one off hit up against a set, a one out hit up, sorry, against a set defensive line. Completely reduces excitement, I think by eliminating scrums and replacing them with hit-ups against set defensive lines. But once a team is pinned in their own end, and we've seen it across the first four rounds already from a number of teams strategically giving away penalties, you know, uh, sorry, set restarts, not even penalties, you'll pin a team deep, and then while they're labouring back to get onside and the outside backs are doing the heavy lifting or whatever, you have your line, you just rush up. You can be three, four, five meters offside and just smash a team for two, three tackles in a row. If you give away a couple couple of set restarts, that's fine because now your defensive line is set and rested and ready to go. And the only advantage the team attacking gets is an extra tackle or two, which doesn't really make any sense to them, any difference if they're working it off their try line. So you've seen this already with um you know teams will just rush up and they'll be on a try line the Broncos in the Broncos game I forget who it was against but they were nearly pinned in the in goal they barely got back into the field of play and there was a set restart for offside what benefit is that I think a team in that situation would much rather the kick for touch and the free 20 30 meters whatever they get over a token tackle where they're going to get smashed anyway because Defences are now just gambling and shooting up. And if they get penalized with the set restart, that's fine. They're just burning a tackle to get most of their guys rested. Because then, not only will they be offside, but then they'll just lay on the guy. They'll lay on the guy in the tackle until their defense is set. There's no extra penalty for laying on them for longer that I've seen. So they'll just wait till everyone is set and ready. And then they'll go again. And then they'll play their proper defense. Probably still a little bit offside but they're not going to call it. And then at the end, the team will make 25 meters and they'll be pinned deep and a rubbish kick and then the, the attacking team will return it to halfway and then they'll just dominate field position using the rules. So that's what I mean when I say you can take advantage by working the new rules to close out games. Because teams can do this until the other team is just absolutely buggered. Because by the time you get to the 55th minute, 60th minute, it might be a 10, 12 point game. But both teams are just shot. Defensive lines have turned into touch-footy scrambles, but other teams are too tight to take advantage of them. Um, So I did mention earlier that I think the gap has been widened. And obviously the argument is to stop catering to mediocrity, which is fair. I don't think that's a bad idea. I'm not saying that these teams need leg-ups and charity handouts to become more competitive. But I think if you just look at the numbers... So according to Scott Bailey, who's from the AAP, this round of results, round four, 2021, was the most lopsided round of results since round 16, 2004, so almost 17 years ago. The margin this round, uh, currently just gone, was 26.1 points, average margin of victory. And that might just mean... That might, mean, that might mean nothing to you, and that's fine. But if you look at the average margin of favourites this year, so the average margin where using the metric that d- would determine. Uh, sorry, to preface this, this next study I'm going to read you is brought to us by uh, Liam, also known as Pythago NRL on Twitter. Uh, recommend you go follow him, he does some great work, uh, more analytical stuff. So, he has a metric that uh, defines favourites. So, what he would define as the favourite in each matchup. The average margin for favourites this season, currently, is 15 points a game. Last year, the average margin of favourites was 8.5 points a game. And since 2007, uh, not including this year and last year, so between 20, uh, 2007 and 2019, the highest average margin for favourites was seven, which was back in 2014. Now, there's a number of things to blame for that. I think the gap has been widened, and the the bad teams, they just have no avenue for comeback. The comeback is dead. Let's be honest. The comeback is effectively dead. There's been three second-half comebacks all season. One of which, a great example, Canberra were up 25-6 on the Warriors back in round three. For a second, couldn't remember what it was. Round round two or three, sorry, off the top of my head. Um, But yeah, so Canberra were up 25-6 against the Warriors. Joe Tarpany, Seb Chris, and Ryan James all got injured in the opening 13 minutes. And they were still able to build a 25-6 lead. You'd think a 25 6 lead when you're the Canberra Raiders, you know, one of the teams with legitimate premiership credentials this season, possibly one of the best, if not the best, forward pack in the league, a good set of halves, you know, the reigning Dahlia medalist, a good fullback, and a stable of really good outside backs, you know, one of the stronger teams in the league against the Warriors, who have proven difficult to play against this year, but I still don't think they're on the same level as the Raiders. You have a 19-point lead, and then this is one of three comebacks in 32 games this season where the team who was losing at halftime ended up winning. I think we can point to the fact that Canberra had one player on their bench for about an hour, and it was Tom Starling, so not a forward, sorry, not a, a front row or a second row, a hooker plus they got datted by that horrific forward pass call which we won't mention because that's just you know, that's just bad refereeing. Can't do much about that. You'd hope they'd make that call, but it is what it is. The fact that we have to rely on historically bad injury rates to potentially facilitate second half comebacks I think is a worrying trend that I would rather not establish in the current NRL. And they have, to the NRL's credit, they have tried to fix it by introducing the 18th man. Now, last week, the 18th man was only to be used if uh, a team suffered three failed head injury assessments. So three concussions. That was triggered by the Cronulla Sharks in round three, having three concussions against Parramatta Eels. That event has only happened twice in 1,500 games, in the last 1,500 games, according to NRL Physio. So it was more of a token measure, just to say, well, you know, we know this is a problem this season, you know, there's been an unusually high concussion rate, so we'll try and combat it. To their credit, they have tweaked it this week to say, uh, you can use the uh, 18th man, if you have three concussions, or if someone is injured uh by the victim of foul play. So I believe a sin bidding. It's still got improvement, room for improvement, because I do think you know that that still is going to be a lower rate, but I am glad they are changing something. But I think there is more. The AFL, for example, just has a blanket medical sub and that obviously it works as a substitution where you activate the guy uh, due to an injury, replaces the injured guy, and then that guy doesn't come back on. So for example, I was watching Swans versus Richmond Tigers on the weekend. Richmond had a guy go down in the first quarter with a hamstring injury. Bang, he was off, brought on their sub. AFL is a different style of game altogether. I'm not suggesting it's similar to NRL. But I do think that there is something to be learned from how the AFL have, have implemented their injury substitution this year. Um, but I do have one overarching point that I did want to get to, and that is fatigue. And I talked about fatigue in an article I wrote on Beyond the Fence the other week, just after the um, Sharks Eels game. So a lot of people will say that the argument... uh, Sorry, that you can't blame the new rules or the new, you know, state of dinner or whatever. You can't blame errors and poor defense slash poor decision-making on the rules. I would argue, yes, you can. Not directly, but it's a chain of events. It's a chain of causation. So the new rules have been implemented. Okay. They're designed to speed the game up by eliminating scrums and stoppages and replacing them with handovers where there's minimal time off and the ball is in play more. And you're also removing the penalty stoppage by replacing it with set restart. So everything is a set restart now, effectively, except for a few specific scenarios. You speed up the game. That increases fatigue. So the rate of fatigue has been sped up So players are gassing out quicker so that by the time you get to the 60th minute, the game is effectively slowed to a crawl. With fatigue comes impaired ability and decision-making. So you're tired, you're not thinking straight. You might make the wrong read in defense. You might drop the ball because you're just so physically tired. I don't think the rules... Sorry, I do think the rules have directly affected that by this chain of this chain of causation that I've just laid out. So I'm not saying that oh, the new rules are brought in and it's made everyone shit. Like, it's made everyone forget how to play the game of footy. And, you know, rah-rah, anti-PVL, this, that, and the other. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is the speed of the game because of these new rules has increased fatigue, which in turn has led to poor decision-making, poor defensive capabilities and poor skills because players are tiring out so much quicker. It is also a reason, I think, this poor technique, and I don't pretend to be a doctor or anything like that, obviously, that I wouldn't be surprised if this fatigue has affected tackling technique which has contributed to people putting their heads in the wrong positions and causing concussions. That is just a wild theory I have. I'm not suggesting it's true and that everyone should listen to me as gospel. But I would not be surprised if there is at least a tenuous link there. But just in general, I think the last 20 to 30 minutes of games have become unwatchable. The fact that the tigers eels game this week just gone was still a contest in the last 20 minutes or so, has become the outlier. It's become the anomaly. There's not much chance now of a team going down to 15 men or so, you know, and holding on with injuries and just gutting a win out. That has gone because the state of the game is so sped up that it's just not possible anymore for teams to deal with such adversity like they would have in the past. The only thing that stops teams from losing those situations is the other team being equally tired because they have also been gassed out by the rules. Just a couple of other things on the uh, injuries and the state of the game, pace of play, whatever. So, on the weekend, the Newcastle Knights suffered more injury troubles. Mitch Pearce threw out a lazy arm, tore his pick. Kurt Mann rushed into a tackle, Got shoulder-charged in the head by, I think, his own guy in the end. Suffered a concussion. Tex Hoy did his hamstring. I think minor, but he's still out for at least a couple weeks, I think. The Knights have about 14 fit players right now. They're going to need exemptions just to name a full 21. Because, obviously, you can't name guys outside the top 30 until I think it's around 11 without hardship exemptions. They have named Callum Ponga this week. Whether he plays is a different story, but I think I think he's ready to go from what I've heard. But well, he's going to kind of have to be now, isn't he? But the funniest thing that I remember from that game, just watching Knights versus uh, Dragons. So in the, it was late in the second half, might've been the 65th, 70th minute, whenever. Uh, I was watching it on Channel 9. Matt Thompson was commentating. And he just threw out a, an offhand comment. You know, he didn't mean anything by it. But he said, surprisingly, because uh, of the, the Knights injury toll in that game, he said, surprisingly, the Dragons have a full bench this late in the game. And to me, that highlighted the alarming trend that we're already seeing, where that is now seen as shocking that a team has four players to choose from on a bench late in the game. Where have we gone where, that, where that's normal? Sorry, where that's not normal. I think him saying that has kind of highlighted indirectly the problem we're facing is we're now treating players not getting injured as surprising. It all comes back to player welfare in the end. And I just think, as Ben Hunt said, the NRL has gone a bit too far the other way. And I don't think the changes they've made while designed to... Increase excitement and improve the spectacle. I don't think endless blowouts, constant injuries sorry, a high rate of injuries, and three teams being borderline historically bad has improved the spectacle at all. Yes, you can say those teams would have been bad anyway. I'm saying that. I think they would have been bad regardless. I don't think they would have all been on pace to have potentially three of, if not the three worst for and against marks of all time. I don't think that was a reasonable assumption to make. If you go into a season predicting that nearly a quarter of your competition is going to be amongst the worst teams of all time, then I think that's worrying. No, I could. I think I've made my point. Uh, I think I've had my argument about what I think, how the new rules have affected the game. I think I've made that pretty clear. I did have a couple other th- things I wanted to talk about quickly about the NRL. So I know I've seen a lot of discourse recently from certain uh, sections of NRL media about the salary cap. I don't see the relevance, just personally. I don't see what the salary cap could do, or what like what the effect of that would be, where. Um, you know, where that would make a difference by changing it or uh, abolishing it or any of that sort of stuff. The salary cap is there to effectively, well, it's there for two reasons. One, it's to equalize, the, in a perfect society, it's there to equalize the talent throughout the league in a, in a perfect competition. We know it doesn't work like that, but that's the intention by giving teams the same amount of money. In theory, it's basically economics. You give everyone the same, Amount of resources. They will all have the same um, end product, the same output, whatever. So it's there to equalize talent. Obviously, with economics, that's not not how it works. But also, it's there to save clubs from themselves. It's to save clubs from putting themselves in severe financial shite by signing players to massive overs. It's there to stop clubs from throwing any money they possibly could... Like, take Penrith again, for example, because it's the club I know the best. It's the example I'm comfortable using. If there was no salary cap, do you really think they would lose Matt Burton? Well, they could probably still lose Matt Burton. But Jerome Luai, Matt Burton, um, Stephen Crichton, Brian To'o. When Luai re-signed, he came out and said, I was surprised that um, me signing this meant that like I wanted to keep the boys together, and we all laughed at him because it was funny and it was cute, whatever. But without a salary cap, what's stopping Penrith from throwing a million bucks at Louai? a million bucks at to- or a million bucks at Crichton, a million bucks at Burton? Besides, obviously, not having that money anyway. But that's just the example I'm using. What's stopping them from throwing whatever money they can to keep all these guys together? Not having a salary cap, I feel, would strengthen Clubs with large junior academies are uh, more than they already are because it would just make th- make them easier to keep all their juniors. You know the old adage, you can't keep them all. By not having a salary cap, Penrith would be able to keep Matt Burton. They'd be able to keep Dane Laurie um, for reasons... Well, sorry. There'd be less reasons for them to leave. Obviously, their desire to play first grade is still the main reason. But financially... It it'd be very tough very easy for them to retain, sorry. Um yeah, they wouldn't lose Matt Burton as easily, they wouldn't lose Dan Laurie as easily. Uh and there are others. Whatever. They wouldn't have to make the tough calls like letting Tedavano go to keep Lenu to re sign him. Um I just think same with the Broncos. They, their junior nurse is one of the best in the league. Same with the Eels all these clubs with to lar- access to large junior academies, abolishing a salary cap would just make it easier to keep all those pick and choose. And then when they're like 24, 25, they get flushed out of the system and replaced with the next batch. But then going too far the other way and introducing a draft, I think it's also bad. Oh, sorry, one more point on the no salary cap. Obviously, it's there to equalize talent. We've seen in leagues, in codes around the world where there is no salary cap and it's all about spending power. And I'm referring, of course, to English, uh, sorry, to European soccer. It comes to a point where you pretty much know the result of the league season before it starts because there are teams that are the powerful teams with all the money that just have the best players because they can afford everyone. And obviously we're talking different scales of cash available, but relatively speaking, it's the same concept. So for example, the best example I can think of this is the German league, the Bundesliga. You look at Bayern Munich have effectively a monopoly on the German league. They've won it however many years in a row. Not only that, they have the best academy in Germany because they have the resources and the money and the sponsorship and the exposure and the fans, etc., to just pour money into junior development. But with their purchasing power, they have effectively bullied other German teams into selling their product, uh, their prospects to Bayern Munich at cut price rates. Because as soon as a player in the German league, a German player specifically, says to their... Like, for example, say um, Mario Goetze was at Borussia Dortmund. As soon as he says, I want to go to Bayern Munich, that's it. They can't keep him. Bayern Munich have basically got all the leverage here because they can negotiate a fee unders, below market value, like well under. It stops them from selling to a rival club outside... Oh, sorry, to a club Outside uh, the league, to you know, to an Italian or Spanish or English team, because again, he won't go there. So, despite them being able to pay more money, he can just say, "No, nah, I'm staying here, or I'm going to Bayern Munich. I just won't play. It's fine. You can keep paying me to sit here, or you can accept the, you know, sixty percent deal and send me to Bayern and get some money." I just wonder if. Like that, it's an extreme example, but it is what's happened with a no salary cap thing in European soccer. Is the team's monopolize and they treat the rest of the league effectively like a junior academy. So I don't remember the last time Bayern didn't win the league. I think it might have been like 2013. Same with Juventus in Italy. They've won it about seven years in a row. I just don't want the league to turn into a monopoly where certain clubs, the richer clubs, have the spending power. Like, you know, the Brisbans, the Sydney's, where they can effectively just go, yeah, well, we can can just buy everything off you. And I know it's an extreme, you know, worst case scenario thing of not having a salary cap. um, But I don't see a reason that it wouldn't happen in some capacity. Uh, But also, yeah, I just said uh, the draft, uh, bringing a draft, going the other way, I think is also, like, a draft doesn't work... For the NRL model, because it de in, it de incentivizes what I don't know if that's the word it it removes the incentive for clubs to develop their own players because what's the point develop a guy for eighteen years or for you know ten years or whatever and then when they're eighteen they go into a draft and then you lose him or you might keep one or two but you'd lose for every one you keep you'd lose seven or eight. And sure, that might equalise local juniors, but it would also... What's the point in having local juniors? Penrith have a pathway system where they bring kids in from all over the state of New South Wales, from both Western Sydney and the Central West, the Riverina, and they get them in there at like 10, 12 years old. Guys like Liam Martin, Isaiah Yo, Brent Naden... Country kids, having a draft pretty much destroys that pathway for a lot of country kids because it stops NRL clubs investing in bush footy because there's no incentive for them. They're not going to get a guaranteed crop of potential first graders. They're going to get some kids that will eventually just go into a pot with all the other kids and they might get a kid that's worse than them, especially for a stronger team like a Penrith or a Canberra or a Melbourne or a, you know, Brisbane uh, academy-wise, juniors-wise, that might have a good season and then get rewarded with no one coming through their system to debut. So that's why I don't think a draft works because it the NRL is good that it's got a junior system. Having a draft would just re- completely remove the need for that because teams would have absolutely zero point in developing their own guys because they would just lose them once they were actually ready to play. And I have also seen the return of the argument for the Holden Cup or Toyota Cup, the under-20s competition. And I did find it funny. It was pointed out to me today. uh, Gus Gould has been calling for the return. Potentially, we need to have under-20 comps back. But eight years ago, again, this is pointed out to me, I noticed it through Andrew Ferguson from Rugby League Project. Go follow him. Uh, Eight years ago, Gus was pushing the idea that we should abolish the under-20s. Um, I didn't really get the point in removing the 20s. I was always a fan of it. I get that it wasn't really a, a game style indicative of potential NRL footy for these kids. It was very much defense optional and the New South Wales Cup is a more representative sample of what NRL footy is like for these young kids. That's fine. But I do think it has it has also removed a pathway because there's less development spots now by not having a national, you know, uniform under-20s competition, and even in that competition, like once kids got to like 19 anyway, and they were clearly too good for the 20s, they'd go play cup anyway, either the Welsh Cup or Q Cup or whatever. So I never wanted it to go. I think it does have a place, and I do think that it brings more needed development spots. But, um, yeah, I just thought it was funny that Gus was calling for it to come back after eight years ago saying, no, nah, we don't need it. Like, what's the point? Um, but, yeah, I think I've made my point very clear. I'm, I'm just skeptical right now of the sta- the state of the game right now. I don't think it's improved, and I don't see a path to it improving anytime soon. I think the new rules have definitely played a part in that. I'm not saying they are the one sole cause. Of course, there are teams that are going to be bad, and of course, we're going to have injuries. But I do definitely think that the the way the game is played right now has definitely highlighted that more than we ever thought uh, was going to happen. I mean, having three teams on a historically bad for-and-against pace is... Crazy, and I know they haven't had the easiest run of fixtures, but I never like, like I said, you look at some of the worst teams of all time, and even they were not this bad a pace. Like, you know, the one of the worst teams in the last 20 years, the Newcastle Knights 2016, weren't even close to this bad stat wise. So, I do think there is a fix to be made. I do think the game has gone a bit too far the other way, it has gotten a bit too fast. Players are fatiguing, and teams, the better teams, can just use the rules to kill off games, which, in a way that I don't think the rules were designed for, it's kind of an unforeseen effect. But I think the penalty is far. Sorry, the punishment doesn't really fit the crime because good teams can just kill teams off by being offside, laying on tackles. And, of course, there's some frustration. You know, I think Michael Maguire said it after the Tigers game, you know, oh, they were just, you know, bending the rules. And I'm thinking, well, there's nothing stopping your team from doing that. I mean, you've seen how the game has been officiated. Why are you not then getting your team to lay on tackles to give away strategic restarts to get your line set? So, you know, there is coaching and other adap- adaptation and definitely other factors. But I think on a macro level, the game is just... Watching neutral games, It's it's almost a bit unwatchable with just, you know, players getting super tired super early and turning into a glorified game of social touch footy. Um, you know, high rates of fatigue, I don't think, make interesting games. I preferred the contest. I don't know who asked for these rules to make the game faster. I just don't think it's worked, personally. But yeah, thank thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond the Fence. Uh, sorry if I've rambled on a little bit. I just tried to... Get my point across, I guess, my arguments and my worries for the NRL right now. Um, Thank you for listening. Follow us on Twitter at BeyondTFence. You can follow me on Twitter at BenSQuag. Until then, I'll see you all next week. Thank you and goodbye.